welcome to the Adventures with Grammy podcast. I am your host, Carolyn Berry. This podcast is for grandparents on the go with their grandchildren and for parents who want to ensure loving relationships across the generations. I welcome your feedback and your input on every episode of the podcast we produce. Please send me an email, carolyn at adventureswithgrammy.com. Now sit back with your favorite beverage and enjoy today's episode. Episode 10 of this podcast features two topics I enjoy and want to do more of now that my grandchildren are older, camping and hiking. Our guests for this program are author Donna McKinney and blogger and podcast host Peggy Barthel. Donna McKinney, a retired grandmother, has written 16 nonfiction books for kids on topics ranging from science and technology to history to sports. Before she wrote for children, she spent many years writing about science at the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory in Washington, D.C. She now lives in North Carolina near her family. I am impressed that you have hiked all of the state parks in the state of North Carolina. That is quite an accomplishment. How do you feel about that? So not to brag, but I feel really, really proud about it. My hiking partner, her name is Teresa, and she's right around the same age I am, which is early 60s. And so, and she's lived in North Carolina all of her life. Her husband passed away just a few years ago too. So we had kind of some similar things going on and we had become friends and we'd go out to eat. And sometimes we would go out and take a walk around, you know, just at a local park, walk around the pond. And then one day she said to me, they have this program, like a little passport book. You go out and hike the North Carolina parks. And I'm sure there are other states who have similar project, you know, similar type programs. But she goes, you go out and hike the state parks and you get a stamp from the ranger at each park. And it's just kind of a fun thing to do. She goes, we should do that. Oh, that sounds like fun. And I had no idea, like there are 41 parks, you know, I, I had no clue. I'm just like, oh yeah, that sounds like fun. So we started doing it because there are a few right here in the Raleigh area, the central part of the state. It's very easy. I mean, we could go there for a couple hours, hike one, get a ranger stamp and, and be done with it. As time went by, it kind of became more and more important in my mind that we kind of reach this goal and get this done. It took us all together about a year and a half altogether from the day we hiked the first one until we hiked the last park. And there's a lot of driving, crisscrossing the state, literally thousands of miles. Uh, by the time we had finished doing it, to me, it's really one of the things in my life, I would say that I'm pretty proud of that we can say we did all the parks in North Carolina. And it was just amazing to see there are parks that are actually at the beach like on the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean. And there are parks. Mount Mitchell is one of the Western parks in North Carolina. That is the highest point east of the Mississippi. So we stood atop Mount Mitchell one day in June, one cool day in July, cool because we were up at that elevation. But yeah, so it was amazing to see all of the state in that way and to get out and hike, be outdoors, do that kind of thing. It was just a lot, a lot of fun. Long answer to your question. I am very proud that we have done that. Yes. I'm impressed that you did it in 18 months. I would have thought that would have taken at least two to three years to do. Some of the trips where we would go out and the 
parks were close enough together that we might do, you know, we might go out for three days and we would get to do two or three parks. So we could knock them off in little batches like that. Once we kind of hit our stride and realize, yeah, this is something we really want to do to get to the end of hiking all of them. I mean, we were really pressing as far as just making the plans and let's go do this. Both of us are retired, but both of us are grandmothers with grandchildren, like caretaking responsibilities. So we had to work around that. But yeah, we worked hard to get it done in 18 months. And we finished in November of 2019. And by February, March of 2020, COVID was here. And, you know, travel got so shut down. And we have said to each other so many times, we are so glad we got that done just because of the long road trips we needed to make with the hikes before COVID hit, because that probably would have sidelined us and we might not still be done if we hadn't finished it before that happened. Did you take any of your grandchildren with you or have you taken your grandchildren hiking? We did not take them when we were doing the state parks. It would be easy for me to do that. I have hiked some locally here with uh, an eight-year-old granddaughter and a five-year-old grandson. We just this week, because we've had some temperatures that have been pretty mild for February, and we have been out in the woods on two different days where we hiked a little short trail just around a pond, letting them lead the way and just look and explore and do that sort of thing. So I do hiking with them um, here locally, things that are very easy access to get to and, and close to home. My younger son and his family, which includes a wife and four children ages one to nine, and I went to the mountains a while back for the purpose of skateboarding. But one of the things that I wanted to do was to see some of the waterfalls. But unfortunately, the weather was not cooperative. And Skyline Drive, which is where the waterfalls were that we wanted to see, was closed. We've decided we will go back and tackle hiking and seeing waterfalls another time. But did you see waterfalls as you were on your hikes? Yes. So I would say that waterfalls are kind of my favorite nature feature as far as being out in the woods (laughs) and hiking. In North Carolina, the state parks that are at the beach, I mean, those are really amazing too. It's neat that we have state parks that are on the Atlantic Ocean. But my very favorite thing is to be in the mountains and where there are waterfalls. And there are some really pretty waterfalls in North Carolina. I don't know. There's just something about that, that water coming over the rocks like that. But I think it's very cool. So yes, waterfalls are a favorite. We have a Facebook group in Virginia called Exploring Virginia. And then there's another group about waterfalls in Virginia. And every time someone posts a picture or I look at those sites, I'm just mesmerized by the absolute gorgeous scenery, the beauty of the waterfalls, just the majesty of it. That is something that I really want to do. So I'm, I'm eager to go back to the mountains and explore those. Springtime's a good time for a trip. So maybe you can get back up into the Shenandoah sometime this spring and see the waterfalls. That would be nice. You actually wrote a book called Hiking, and it was published after you finished your 
trek around North Carolina. Was that book one of the reasons you agreed to do the hiking with your friend, or did the book come out of your hiking adventures? The book came out of the hiking adventures. When the publisher approached me, I was already hiking the parks. And I'm like, oh yeah, let me let me take those too. We did not actually do any camping in the state parks. There are people who do camping, but I picked those two titles because I was already in the middle of our 18 months of hiking there. And so to me, it felt very natural because these were things that I were, was already learning about, just practical experience, trial and error, kind of getting out there and knowing what you need and the gear and that sort of thing. And then I did the research too, you know, to actually get it all down on paper and write the book. But yes, the hiking and camping books, two separate titles in that series, happened in the same time frame when I was doing the hiking of the, the state parks. Tell our listeners what the age group is for those books. The age range on these books is ages 8 to 12. The books are available on Amazon. There's information in there, just kind of practical how-to stuff, like what kind of gear do you need? Tents, sleeping bag, the right kind of clothing, the right kind of shoes, um, even stuff like hats and sunscreen, the things like that you want to think about. The food that is practical and good and and kind of healthy to eat when you're hiking what are good for snacks what are good for and camping what are good for the meals the importance of having access to clean drinking water always because that's so important the tools you might need like matches pocket knife axe hammer a gps although i will say there are plenty of places where if you're hiking or camping you might be off the grid so it's also good if you know how to read a map and a compass that can be really helpful. First aid kit, things like that. So the book talks about these different things that you might need if you want to get started in camping. It also has, you know, some helpful maybe suggestions like start out practice camping in your own backyard. You know, you don't have to go anywhere really to camp in most settings you could simply go outdoors and camp if you wanted to do a practice run overnight or just to kind of figure out what all you need and don't need. That's what the book is about, ages 8 to 12 for the hiking and the camping books. Let's talk about the hiking for a bit. You open the book with a story about a little girl. She's about 12 years old. Her name is Reed. Tell our listeners, what is so spectacular about Reed? She and her dad started out from the time she was very young, doing a lot of hiking together. She loved going out with her dad and about the time she was in eighth grade, so middle school age, she was wanting to take on a bigger challenge. So she asked her dad if they could hike the Pacific Crest Trail, which runs over 2,600 miles, stretching all the way from Mexico to Canada. And I mean, then they went on, she hiked, so she hiked that one. Then she, she went on as she got a little bit older to hike some other long trails in the U.S., the Appalachian Trail, which is over 2,000 miles on uh, long, the Continental Divide Trail, which is over 3,000 miles. Um, and so... By hiking those three, the Pacific Crest Trail, the Appalachian Trail, the Continental Divide Trail, which are all super long trails, that's called the triple crown of hiking. Um, and there aren't that many people in the 
you know, in the world who have ever achieved the, that triple crown of hiking the length of all three of those. Reed did it. By the time she was done, she had hiked in 22 different states and she had worn out six pairs of shoes. That was a pretty amazing story. I think about a young person, you know, she was like 11, 12, 13, 14 in the time she was doing those long hikes with her dad. But it shows something that, you know, adults and kids with the right gear and the right motivation, something they can easily do together and accomplish some pretty amazing things. Yeah, it says at age 13, she had hiked all three of the trails for a total of 7,942 miles. That is amazing. Yes, it is. You talk about darting out with short, short hikes, but what kind of physical condition and mental condition does someone need to be in to accomplish, maybe not to the extreme that Reed did, but just to do what you did? What kind of physical and mental health do you have to have to accomplish that? Right. So I'm not a doctor, of course, but um, what I was already doing before I started the hiking of the parks was, I mean, I take my dogs out on walks twice a day. So I was, you know, like 20, 30 minute walks uh, once or twice each day. So I was doing regular walking before, before we started hiking the parks. And one thing we did too that I think is smart is you, I think you kind of need to know where you are as far as you know physical capable capabilities. We would st every time we hiked there was like a ranger station there, the park ranger station, and we would stop in and talk to someone, one of the rangers, and he's standing there looking at us. So obviously we're not 20 years old; we're like 60 plus with a little bit. Um, and we'd say, okay, we want to hike um, several miles here. What do you suggest? And they can talk to you about, you know, well, there's a lot of incline on this one, or there's a lot of rocks, or this is a flatter trail. So I think you can, you can be smart about how you start off and how you kind of tackle things as far as doing what you're capable of doing safely, doing what you're capable of doing safely. Right. We don't need superheroes needing to be carted down the mountainside. Right. I'm sure the rangers did not want to do a so, rescue, rescue with us. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about the best kind of clothing to wear. Uh, so from my research, and I think most of the experts would agree on this. So um, the things that are labeled as like active wear or wicking, you know, where where if you uh, sweat as you would when you're hiking or when you're camping or when you're doing anything active like that, it's not going it, to, it's going to allow it to, the clothing will dry and kind of evaporate. That's good. Another important thing is um, layers of clothes so that you can add more on or take off as you might get warmer or colder, what, whatever you need. So having the layers, that was something we did with the hikes. We always had like something, an extra layer in our backpacks when we went out, just so that we could stay comfortable as we're going. It's really important that you have good socks, just good quality socks, um, and that you've bought good fitting shoes and like maybe sneakers are not necessarily the best hiking shoes. You, you want something that are either like hiking boots or even trail shoes, which is kind of just a heavy duty sneaker is what it looks like but it's usually got a better tread and is better for being out, at, out on rough surfaces. Good shoes, good socks, 
layers of clothing and that active wear or the wicking fabrics that allow the, the moisture to evaporate and, and not be uh, clinging to you. Those are all good things. A hat is really a good idea. The sunscreen is really important. Even in the cold weather months, if you're gonna be outdoors for long periods of time, you want that sunscreen on and plenty of water. If you're not gonna camp on the hikes, what right. gear do you need? As far as when we were going out on our hikes, we both had light backpacks. In the hot weather months, because North Carolina can be really hot in the summertime. I had a separate little backpack just called like a, a camelback. It ha actually has like a water pouch inside of it and this great long drinking straw, but it allows you to carry water on your back. I mean, water bottles work too, but I would use that because that allowed me to carry a couple of liters of water very easily on my back. So in the really hot weather hiking, that was the backpack I used. If it wasn't that extremely hot, then it was just a regular light little backpack. It wasn't anything fancy, but that allowed us to carry snacks and uh, like a basic first aid kit, bug sprays. We always were needing the bug sprays, uh, sunscreen, plenty of water, that sort of thing. We carried a whistle. We never needed to use our whistle, but <laughs> just for safety's sake, uh, we had a whistle with us. Explain the whistle for safety's sake. What do you mean by that? If you got lost, lost, the whistle could be a way you hope that someone else might hear you if you make enough racket. I mean, and we were also hiking in some areas where there were bears. We never, we never saw any bears, thankfully, but just that whistle made us feel better. I don't know practically how much good the whistle would have done if we came face to face with the bear. I think it may have been whoever could run the fastest would be the best off, but the, we had, we had a whistle with us, you know, on, on a strap on my backpack. I would be a little afraid of bears. Yes. Well, we weren't looking for <laughs> bears. <laughs> That's for sure. But we were in places, especially in the mountain parks, and also even in the east, eastern part of North Carolina, the Dismal Swamp a State Park. And I think there's some bears there, it seems like. But yeah, so there's some there different... Are. Yeah. Okay. Do you... Yeah, because that's not far from you, right? The Dismal Swamp region. Yeah, so I know there are bears there. Yes. Well, see, it's it's right on the line because in North Carolina, it is a state park for us. The Dismal Swamp is that big an area. Right. Yeah. Yes, so yes, is. yes. Yeah. So there are bear, bears there and there are bears in a lot of the mountain regions too. We never saw a bear, but we lots of mosquitoes, but no bears. One of the things that I've heard and you've written in your book is leave no trace. And what exactly can you can you define what leave no trace means? Leave no trace means no gum wrappers, no trash, nothing left behind. So if we sit down in the middle of the woods somewhere and have a snack, then all of our wrappers, Ziploc baggies, a plastic water bottle, an empty plastic water bottle, whatever it might be, goes back into our backpacks until we get out to somewhere where there are trash cans and we can get rid of it. For me as a hiker, it just means that uh, there have been times even where we have seen a plastic bottle thrown down on a trail or something like that, and we've picked it up and carried it out to sound sappy. But, you know, these lands belong to all of us, and we want to take care of them. And so taking care of them, I think, means leaving them as naturally as they, as they can be. That means taking the trash out. So we haul our trash home, leave no trace behind. Some people would probably define it like, don't go destroying things, you know, don't go 
cutting down trees or things like that, you know, don't, don't tear things up either is another way I think of thinking about leave no trash, I mean, leave no trace behind. For us, we thought of it strictly in terms of the trash, you know, everything that we might have used or opened up or ripped apart while we were in the woods, uh, we hauled out with us and threw it away in, a, in the proper container once we were back in civilization. You talk about geocaching in the book, and my grandchildren are getting to the age, well, one, they're at the age where the idea of pirates' treasures just fascinates them, but they're getting to the age where I think they might begin to enjoy geocaching, so I wanted to introduce them to that just even around my farm to hide little trinkets and get them to, you know, learn to use a GPS Right. So can you explain that to the listeners, what geocaching is, and have you had any experience doing it? I haven't done it myself. I have been with someone at the beach before who had done geocaching, and she was explaining it to me and showing it to me because we came upon a couple of places that was a location where there was some a little trinket there and there was a logbook there. So you use your a handheld GPS device of some sort to track and find hidden objects that other people have placed there. And a lot of times they have placed, um, placed it in some kind of little container that is waterproof and keeps it safe. And there also might be some kind of logbook there where you just put the name and date of you being there. So it's like this GPS treasure hunt. I think it could be a lot of fun for kids, just uh, kind of the hidden treasure aspect of it and so forth. There are places where you come upon these things. There is a geocaching website. If you actually just would do a Google search for, for geocaching, G-E-O-C-A-C-H-I-N-G. You'll see a lot there as far as some websites and so forth that explain it, what it is about and how you actually go about doing it. But I'm looking at the website right now while I'm talking to you and it's it, the, the homepage says there are millions of geocaches around the world. There are probably even some near you right now. And so you can find these websites online if this were, were something that a parent or grandparent wanted to do with a child and learn a whole lot more about it. The treasure hunt aspect of it would be a fun thing to do with a child or a grandchild, for sure. Yeah, I haven't approached them yet about it. I'm waiting till, until summertime when it's warmer weather, but that's definitely something that I would like to do with my grandkids. Are there any other tidbits that you want to share with the listeners about hiking? What would you like to tell listeners? One thing that I came to realize, I mean, I think I probably knew this like from an intellectual standpoint, head knowledge, but as we started doing the hikes over that period of 18 months, I mean, it really is good for you, not only physically, but I think mentally just to get outdoors. And for us having that goal that we were working toward of, of doing all the North Carolina parks, I mean, that was a really good thing too. I think goals are good in life. Having goals are a good thing and having something to work towards. Just the mental aspect, and, and I talk about that, I d honestly don't remember if it's a hiking or, I think it's a camping book. Medical professionals have said that, you know, this, this idea of being outdoors is, and being, you know, active in nature and so forth, you know, there are proven health benefits to it, not just the physical benefits of getting out and walking around, but the mental um, benefits of what it does for you to be outdoors. So, I think it's a really good thing. I think it's a great thing to do with the children or the grandchildren. 
I think being in the woods is like being in this uh, great big giant classroom. It's educational without feeling like you're in a classroom, if that makes sense. You know, like there's learning that goes on. Oh, absolutely. Just, just <laughs> yeah, just because you are out in nature and there are ways of learning and things that, that maybe can be achieved uh, that the limitations of a classroom you might not be able to do. So I'm just a huge fan of the outdoors as far as getting out with the grandkids and, and doing things. And it doesn't have to be that coordinated or organized. You know, you want to be safe, but just to get out and take a walk through the woods uh, is, is a really good thing, I think. I'll give you a good example of a lesson learned out in nature. As I had said earlier, I was with my family in the Shenandoah National Park just a couple of weeks ago and the weather here had been rainy and snowy and icy and there was a fire pit and logs there that we could start a fire with so my son tried to start a fire and we had little kindling to start it and we had cardboard and paper and the logs would smoke they would not catch fire even though we would have a good little kindling fire the right. logs themselves would not catch and so my older two grands or my grandsons the older two his older two children were quite disappointed and wanted to know why the wood wouldn't burn and so it was a lesson on well the firewood is wet so it has to be dry in order to burn their dad bought a small batch of firewood the next day. And then that night we were able to build a successful fire and we roasted marshmallows and made s'mores. But it was a good lesson for the boys to see what water did to wood and why, you know, we couldn't light the fire the first time. All we got was a lot of smoke, but with dry wood, we could actually light a fire and enjoy it. That was something they learned, incidental hey. learning. I think most of us too learn best in like hands-on situations like that, where we're st you're standing there looking at the smoking log that won't burst into flame. I mean, I think those things are memorable for us. So that's why I say that going out in the woods with the grandchildren is, is to me just a great plan. We love it. I know listeners have heard me say this before, but that is what I call stealth learning. We talked about how to stack the firewood so that there would be enough oxygen for the fire to burn. That is a science lesson that they're not going to experience in the classroom because there is no teacher that is going to allow a live fire in the classroom. Right. So it was something that they learned and they learned a little bit about science without it being a classroom lesson. And I, I just love those opportunities. Yes. Yeah. Plenty, lots of, so, lots of lessons in the woods for sure. Yes. And you actually opened the book talking about Jack and Abby stacking the firewood and how they do it so that they can get a nice fire going. Yes. That was in the front of the camping book, right? The camping yeah. book. Yeah. Yes. That was, a, uh -huh. that was the beginning of the camping book. Yeah. Just talking about that to show um, the idea that it can be something that, you know, families can do together, parents and children, grandparents and grandchildren, whatever the age arrangements might be, but those sorts of things. I learned something reading your book about the father of camping. I had never heard of him before. Could you tell us a bit about him? Oh my goodness, yes. So I had not heard of him either until I started researching for the book, but his name was William Murray. He was actually a young minister, and this was in the late 1800s. 
and he wrote this how-to book about going camping. It was kind of, so they call him the father of camping in America or the minister who invented camping in America. But he suggested that it was, it was a good thing, like physically um, and spiritually for people to go spend time in the outdoors. And up to this point, people hadn't really thought of, you know, that in this purposeful way, they would go spend time in the outdoors. I'm sure they worked jobs in the outdoors and stuff like that. You know, they survived by being active in the outdoors, but he was the first one to suggest something like go spend time in the outdoors. It's good for you. And he was specifically focusing what he was talking about the Adirondack mountains uh, in New York. And when he published his book, few people were going camping, but as his book gained popularity, then they began to see the, the numbers of people who were going into the Adirondack Mountains really started to skyrocket. And so that was why they call him the minister who invented camping in America, but he's really thought of as the father of count camping in America. He was also big on suggesting that women could do this too. I guess that that was a time when maybe women might have been thought to be a little fragile for some activities, but he was like, oh no, this is a good thing. And so, and so he, he encouraged the ladies to go out camping also. He wrote that camping was quote, delightful to ladies. There is nothing in the trip, which the most delicate and fragile need fear, unquote. Or he described camping as a pilgrimage and said that busy crowded city life calls people to be confused and anxious. Yes, I would agree with all that. That is true. Right. One of the things that you talk about is camping in your backyard before you head out to get everybody familiar with sleeping in tents and sleeping bags. And yeah, I think also from from what I read about people who are uh, experts at camping, they, they suggest that idea. And even from the standpoint of figuring out what you need to bring, what you don't need to bring. And isn't it easier if you're just in your backyard when you figure out, oh, we left the matches at home than if you're off in the woods somewhere. It's almost kind of like this trial run practice thing for children or grandchildren, just camping in the backyard could be a really fun activity in its own thing. It's a way of uh, getting your feet wet as far as knowing what you need, knowing what you don't need, because carrying too much if you, especially if you're like backpacking, if you're carrying it on your back, then you do not want to be carrying more stuff than you need. So that backyard camping is a good way of, of kind of figuring all that out while you're just 15 feet from the back door. That was a suggestion that's, on that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great idea. Now let's talk about bears because we already talked about them in our hiking talk. I know there's some great precautions, campers who are in a national or state park where bears are known to live need to take to not attract bears to your campsite. So can right. you talk to us about those? What I understand, the main thing when you're camping is that you want to keep the food sealed up and protected because our human food would be very appealing to the bears and they might not otherwise come around unless that food was out where they had access to it. You could be sleeping in your tent and if you've got food outside of your tent, then you've basically hung out a welcome sign for the bears, right? There are actual, and, and the camping gear stores would have these, they're like bear canisters, which are containers that you can kind of put your different food items inside of and seal them up. And even if the bear were to come in 
this is a hard-sided container. So even if the bear were to come into campsite area and try to get into that container, the ones that are made to be bear canisters uh, or bear boxes, the bear is not gonna be able to get inside of that box. So the thought would be after a few minutes, hopefully of messing with it, the bear will wander on off into the wilderness away from the campsite. So there are some parks that actually require, like the national parks where there are a lot of bears, they require campers to use the bear lockers, the bear boxes to keep the food sealed away safely. That's a great idea. <laughs> I'm in agreement with you on that. <laughs> <laughs> I love nature, but I'll hike during the day and sleep in my RV at night. I'm not the camping tent in the outside. Right. Great right. outdoors at night. Well, as, as I told you, I'm a Did hiker. You, I'm a hiker, but not a camper myself. So yes. Were you able to do any uh, stargazing and see the beautiful night skies while you were in the mountains? Yeah. So we were not typically, I don't think we were ever hiking after dark. We were back to the vehicle by dark, but we were out in those areas, which is away from the cities after dark. And yeah, I mean, you know, the night sky is amazing once you're away from the city lights. It really is. So if you're going to be out there in hiking or camping, doing any of that sort of thing after the sun goes down, then be sure and look up because uh, the night sky puts on quite a show once we're clear of the light pollution that comes from, from city light. Waterfalls and stargazing are two of my passions and the reason that I want to explore the state and national parks far away from cities and light pollution. I'm just really yes. eager to see that. I want to ask one other question. Did you find that after your hikes, your stress level was down and did it impact your sleeping in any way? Well, I always sleep good. <laughs> On the days that I have actually hiked, I always sleep better just because I think it's a more than usual physical activity for me, like not too much activity, but it's been a good workout that day and I always slept well at night. Absolutely, yes. To me, it's very relaxing to be out away from just like the distractions of even home or town life or city life, whatever, to be out in woods. I just think that's very relaxing. Well, maybe we will meet up on a hike one day. <laughs> Carolyn, that would be great fun. We could bring the grandchildren along, right? Actually, one of the things that I want to do with the kids, and there was a, a site that I found in the western part of North Carolina, is taking them to a mining camp where we can mine for gems, gem mining. I think that would be fun. I want to wait till they're a little bit older for that, but I think that would be a lot of fun. So I have to add the third thing, waterfalls, stargazing, and gem mining. Oh, perfect. That would be a, a great a week, a week. You've got a week long trip there already. I Peggy Barthel, along with her husband, Tony, hosts the Stress Less Camping podcast and write about their adventures on their blog by the same name. Pull up a chair and join Peggy and me around an imaginary campfire as she regales you with stories from her childhood and shares tips that will help you and your little campers become and remain happy campers. Tell us why camping is a great family adventure. Camping is a great family adventure because it gets you away from the house, away from the daily routines, 
which you may have completely under control, but you don't realize that they kind of control you, you know, your daily get up and go to do your schooling and do this and do that. And so camping takes you out of that atmosphere and really kind of gives you the opportunity to do things differently. And, you know, even if it's as much as going in the backyard and, and not looking at the dirty kitchen or something, that's a way that I always find that, you know, just being outside of the house and being in a different environment changes my mentality enough that I can really change and really relax and be stressless. I know you just went on a camping adventure. Where did you go? We did. We live in Northern California and we had, we had thought we were going to Quartzsite, Arizona for the big RV show, but we changed our minds kind of at the last minute, but we already had the time scheduled out to go away. So we, I kind of sketched out a trip to Death Valley and then it was the greatest trip ever because every morning we got up and said, well, are we ready to move on or should we just stay here for another day? So that complete lack of stress of having to be somewhere at some time made it such a great vacation. But we went down to through the Southern California desert and into Death Valley and visited Death Valley for a couple of days. Can you tell us a bit about Death Valley and Joshua Tree National Park? I grew up in Southern California, so I spent a lot of time in the Mojave Desert. So it's kind of like really dear to my heart, a place I love to go. Joshua Tree and Death Valley are two um, national parks in the Mojave Desert. Joshua Tree is known mostly for its big granite boulders that are very beautifully eroded and very round and very nice for for bouldering but it's also famous because the joshua tree the plant it's found in other places in the mojave desert but it's very common there in the joshua tree park very known for the joshua trees and for the climbing boulders death valley is a really big park and it is known for its extremes so it has bad water which is 282 feet below sea level it's got the extreme low elevation, and then it's also got like a very high elevation, you know, because it you go up in the in the mountains. It's got extreme hot temperatures. Even in the in the winter time, the temperatures are quite warm. It was like seventy degrees while we were there in January, and it is. It's got a lot. It's got a variety of things. So you've got a Salt Creek, which houses a little fish that's indigenous only to the Death Valley area. You've got that low elevation. You've got some really beautiful geology. So it's a, it's a multiple day exploration to see all of Death Valley. And then right now it's closed, but Scotty's Castle is in the northern part of the valley. And it's this fabulous house that uh, has a lot of history, but unfortunately was flooded in a really bad storm a couple of years ago, and they're working on fixing that up. Is that where you camp? When we were in Death Valley, the campgrounds in the valley were closed. We camped in a town called Tacopa just outside of Death Valley. There is camping in Death Valley, and there is camping in Joshua Tree when they're open. <laughs> okay. Um, and the desert actually... The wintertime is actually a great time to visit the Southern California desert because 
um, you know, like in Northern California, it's cold and all over the country, it's cold, but that, like I said, it's like 70 degrees there during the day. Although they did get snow in Death Valley right after we left because there was a big wet, you know, big winter storm that came through the whole state or probably the whole country. And they did get some snow right after we left, but it tends to be really warm and mild down in that area. I remember in a cross country trip with my children, they went from Death Valley to Yosemite and from you know, warm to in shorts, walking in snow in Yosemite yeah. Park. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, we've got some, some really, California's got a lot of, I guess because it's got a lot of elevation change, it's got a lot of microclimates that, you know, you, that you can get to from one day to the next <laughs> or, or from in during one day, you know, drive for a few hours and you can be, like you said, from, 70 degrees to snow. It was funny to see the kids wearing shorts standing in snow. So let's talk about backyard camping. I will uh, start by telling you that just before Christmas, as a Christmas present to my grandchildren, my younger son set up a glamping yurt in the backyard. This company came in oh. and did it for them. And they had dinner and hot chocolate and they set up a movie screen so the kids could watch movies from the yurt. It was really fun. The kids had that a great Christmas. But that's, that is fun. Yeah, that's on the glamorous side of backyard camping. My <laughs> idea, my idea of a backyard camping is just to pitch a tent and put a sleeping bag in. So in between, I know there are lots of alternatives. So what can you suggest to our grandparents that they do for their little ones? What would be a fun backyard camping experience? I'm with you. I think pitching a tent with some sleeping bags is a great idea. And, you know, the act, it's about the activities. Part of it is the excitement of sleeping in the tent or sleeping outdoors. And if you don't have a tent, maybe string up some hammocks or something. And, you know, just so that you can sleep outdoors, but also the activities of being outdoors. And it, you know, I guess it really depends on where you live and what your yard is like. Spend the afternoon searching for different kind of leaves or looking for insects or something so that you're really in nature. So you don't know you're in your yard, you just, you're in nature. And then if you have any kind of a ability to have a fire pit, you know, roast your hot dogs and roast your marshmallows for your s'mores over the fire pit. These are the kind of memories that I still have from when I was a kid camping with my grandparents of, you know, just that together time. And I think that's the important thing is just to spend that together time. So, you know, do a little bit of, of nature observing, maybe, maybe use your barbecue grill if you don't have a fire pit. I have actually for a, for an, an event where we couldn't have a fire, but I wanted it to look like one, I took a low fan and faced it up and tied ribbons, red and yellow and orange ribbons, and blew the ribbon upward so that it looked like a fire. Now you can't roast your marshmallows on that, but <laughs> you could have story time around the fake campfire. Singing kids' songs like Bingo and John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. I actually found a book very recently called S is for S'mores and it's a camping alphabet and it's part of a series. There's like 
B is for Buckaroo is a, is a cowboy alphabet, really fun book. And I thought I was buying it as a baby gift and decided I had to keep it for myself. So I had to go get another gift. <laughs> Reading about camping, talking about camping, reliving the adventure that you had that day and just spending, I, I really think that it's really about making the memories. It's not so much how you do it. I mean, if you can't, if you don't have a backyard, throw some blankets over the furniture in the living room and just have a camp out in the living room. Just spend that time pretending to camp and doing kind of nature types of things. Great idea. I hadn't thought about that one. We have a barn. And so I was thinking I would take my kids oh, up and we would sleep in the loft of the barn. That would be terrific. Yeah, with sleeping bags. And we do have bonfires from time to time where we've roasted hot dogs and made s'mores. And the kids find yeah. that fascinating. They enjoy that. Tell us about growing up and camping with your, your parents and your grandparents. What was that like? Tell us some of the experiences. So when I was, when I was really young and my parents were still together, my parents would take us camping and there were by then, by that time there were, there were four of us and we were two years apart. And so I know that my mom, I don't know how she did it, to be honest with you. <laughs> I don't know how she did a lot of things in life. And, and I asked her and she's like, oh, you know, I just managed. So, so we would camp together. We lived in Colorado. So, you know, lots of great opportunities to be in nature there. I can remember one time very young and we thought that ash was falling from the campfire. And then we realized it was starting to snow. We were just out there camping. And then a couple of times, my grandparents from California would come and pick us up in Colorado, myself and my younger sister. And we would camp. We, she had, they had a camp uh, truck camper and we would travel back to California and we would camp along the way. And that, those memories are so much fun because I know that you know, we spent a lot of time with our grandparents and we got to see, you know, all that country between California and Colorado. And I can remember, you know, standing on the four corners of the United States and, and swimming in KOA campgrounds. And they took us to one year, a different year, they took us to the Oregon coast with my sister and my cousin. As an extended family, my grandparents and my aunts and uncles and my mom, we would all go out to the desert on weekend, like a lot of times on the weekends and just go out and my grandparents belong to a dune buggy club. So we'd go hang out with the dune buggies or we'd have a few dirt bikes that my cousins owned and we'd just go out and run around the desert like heathens and, <laughs> and you know, everybody, all the grownups were the parents and all the kids were siblings. And we just were together in a big group and in a big open area where there was all kinds of freedom to just roam around and have fun. And my grandparents, uh, like I said, they belonged to a dune buggy club for a while. So we would go with that club and spend a lot of time with those dune buggies. I actually learned to drive in my grandfather's Baja bug, went out in the desert at 12 years old. But the great thing about that was I understood manual transmissions and stick shift and clutches so that when I wanted to ride a motorcycle or when I started actually driving, I had all that experience already and I didn't have to learn to drive. I just had to learn to drive on the street. <laughs> and parallel park. Oh, yeah. I've never really gotten very good at that. <laughs> I read that you had a special relationship with your grandfather. I did. Yeah. But when my, after my dad left and my mom was uh, raising us by herself, 
my grandparents really picked up a lot of the extra work that it took to raise five children. And we spent a lot of time with our grandparents, you know, after school and on summers when my mom was working because, you know, that was my father figure. My grandfather and I were very, very close and I was kind of his left-hand man and I would run errands for him and I would pour his coffee. And when he got a little older and when I got a little older, he was diabetic. And so he had to have insulin shots and he let me give him his shots. And so I was like one of only two people in the family that would dare to stick a needle in grandpa, but, <laughs> but somehow that made us closer too, I guess. So you write about after everybody else has gone to sleep, just watching the campfire with your grandpa. Yeah. If grandpa was going to be up, I was going to be up. If grandpa was going to be taking a walk, I was taking a walk. I was kind of like a little puppy dog following him around and just wanting to do the things he did and be like him. And I can remember him. I can remember sitting in the smoke of the campfire and, you know, everybody's up and running around, moving around, trying to miss it. And he'd just sit there. So I'd just sit there suffering. Like if he's going to do it, I'm going to do it. And he said, well, you know, smoke follows beauty. So it must be that it's just coming to the most pretty people. <laughs> what a sweet memory. Are yeah. you a geologist? I am. I actually do have a degree in geology. I have a master's degree in groundwater geology. I haven't really used it because right about the time I got my degree, I also bought a bed and breakfast <laughs> and so kind of changed my life. But I do have a great love of geology and enough understanding to get by. I also am really interested in, I, I took a, a couple of classes that described the relationship between geology and biology. So certain rock types will support certain kind of vegetation. And that really always fascinated me. And doing a study on groundwater, groundwater and surface water in school, I was able to tell where there would be fresh water based on what vegetation I could see. And that was just, that always really stuck with me. And I really enjoy being able to understand those relationships between the water and the, and the vegetation and the rock type and things like that. Do you use any of your schooling when you're camping other than finding the fresh water? I don't necessarily, well, I, it, it kind of guides where I want to go as a tourist. I want to go where the geology is really interesting and the Mojave Desert really does that for me, but also we got a chance to go to Yosemite in the summer of 2020 when they were really limiting how many people could go in. And that was a fantastic experience because we were able to observe the geology. We didn't, you know, go hiking up Half Dome or anything like that, but we were able to see all the things without the extreme crowds that Yosemite is famous for. And so I tend to, when we are talking about where we want to camp or where, you know, where we want to take a road trip, I tend to seek out places that have interesting geology. That's a wonderful way to plan a trip. I had just interviewed the founder of the Family Travel Association, and that was his tip for families planning vacations is to first think about what it is you want to see and do, and then scope out the destination as opposed to, I want to go this place, but it might not have all of the things that you really want to do on your vacation. I thought that was right. an interesting way of looking at it. And you just reinforced that. 
Similarly, we talked to James and Stephanie Adenero from the Fit RV recently, and they said a similar thing. We, Tony and I, the way we travel, we tend to pick a destination. And then when we get there, like maybe take a walk, we're not really very active people, but we'll take a walk or we'll have our bicycles. James and Stephanie plan their trips based on where they can do something active. They want to mountain bike this trail. So that's where they go camping. They want to hike this mountain. So that's where they go camping. And so that's an, a great way to plan is to determine what you, what it is you want to do or what you want to see, and then find the places that you can do those things. So let's go back to your childhood and sitting around the campfire. What kind of stories did your grandfather tell? Probably mostly lies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those are the best stories. <laughs> I, I don't know if I can remember specifically any stories. I really think that mostly when we, at nighttime, campfire time, even though we were sitting around and I was, you know, sitting with grandpa, I think it was kind of more adult time. You know, they would talk about the goings on of the world and not necessarily entertain the kids. Like I said, just being near my grandpa was enough for me. Well, what kind of foods did you eat on your camping trips? So that is, that's one of the greatest memories of camping with my mom actually is that because she worked so many hours and she worked so hard, there were, there were things that we only got to eat when we were camping. For example, we always knew when a camping trip was coming up because she would bake cinnamon rolls. And so we knew that cinnamon rolls meant we were going to be having, we were going camping because that's the only time we ever got cinnamon rolls. And then she would make breakfast for, again, it goes back to that, you know, you're out of your normal element, you're out of your normal busy routine, and you get to do things differently. And so she would take the time to make us pancakes or French toast and, you know, maybe fry some bacon and give us cinnamon rolls. And we got to, this was like some of the funniest things that you remember, we got to make our own we got to stir our own hot chocolate. So she would put a scoop of powdered milk and a scoop of chocolate and she'd pour hot water and we got to make <laughs> our own hot chocolate. And that is like, like, cause this crazy, like you think probably as a parent, you're like, this is not going to be a memory, but that is stuck in my head forever that I got to stir my own hot chocolate. And then, <laughs> and then as when we camped as groups, we did a lot of kind of potluck food. We camped a lot on holidays even. So we'd have turkey dinners or big potlucks for Easter or something like that. And, you know, it's a great way to add variety because if every family brings a little bit of something different, then it's not one person or one, you know, one household trying to make all those different dishes. It, it's one of the great things about that I love about family dinners and buffets is, or, or potlucks is you get such a variety. And because there were so many people and so many kids, the parents weren't really watching what we were eating. So we actually only ate the things we really liked. <laughs> when you and your husband camp now, what kind of foods do you fix? We eat pretty much similar than we do to, to the way we eat at home. We do tend to use our cast iron over our propane fire pit a lot when we're camping. And so actually in the spring of 2020, when we couldn't go camping, we set up what we called camp boredom in our driveway with our camper. And we would just go sit in the quote unquote campsite. And we experimented learning how to use our big cast iron skillet. It's, it's kind of a Dutch oven. It's two skillets that's, that are like a lid. 
And so it behaves as a Dutch oven. And we put the propane fire pit and we put, we made pizza and casseroles and chicken dishes. And we just really experimented. And we love to do that, especially making pizza. We love when we're camping, maybe with another couple, we're like, oh, we got dinner. We're making pizza. And they're like, what? <laughs> we're like, you are not going to believe it, but we make a pizza over the campfire. Well, that sounds delicious. Yeah. And so we, we really got, like I said, we got to experiment a lot. And with the backup plan that if something didn't cook well, we'd just go in the house and find something different to eat. So we weren't, <laughs> you know, if we did it when we were camping and we didn't have another plan, then we would eat whatever we ruined, but we didn't ruin anything. That was the greatest part. So I think if you have, like I said, if you have a tent, you're like 90% of the way there, because even if you don't have sleeping bags, you've got blankets and pillows. And, and if you don't have a tent and the weather's nice, you can just camp out under the stars. It doesn't really take much. You know, you can probably stack up some pillows and throw a blanket on top and just sleep on the ground on some pillows. And like I said, it's all about breaking that routine and doing things that are fun and doing things together. So it doesn't really take a whole lot, but if you've got a tent, then obviously that's the easiest way. And the great, again, the great thing, like when we experimented with our cooking, the great thing is if you're in the tent overnight and the kid is just not happy and, and, you know, just some people don't love camping or especially don't love it the first time, then you can go in the house and, and nothing is, is ruined. You just go inside, but you've got that backup plan and you've got that, that safety net, but you pretend it's not there until you absolutely have to use it. But it's nice again, just to be in nature, camp outside, look at the stars, look at the cloud formations and just really, really just enjoy nature. Even if it's just outside your back door. I would think that parents and grandparents could even open up their garage doors, take the vehicles out and just sleep in the garage. And that would be an entry way to camping in the backyard too. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because then you're, you've got that fresh air still flowing around, but you don't feel quite as exposed maybe. And if you don't already have a tent, then you're not you're not concerned that you don't have the tent to work to work with. I would imagine the places you visit in California have awesome night sky views. Can you tell us about some of your experiences that way? Yeah, so you're right. The the Southern California and the and the Southern Arizona desert, we were in quartzite a year ago in January and the the night sky, the stars, like there's just so many stars. And then also the sunsets because it's such a big wide open, you know, maybe a little bit of cloud cover to give a great sunset. But the night sky viewing in the desert where there's not only is it big wide open space, but there's not a lot of light around. So, you know, we don't realize when we live in a city we, maybe we look up and we can see three or four stars and you don't realize how partial of an experience that is until you really get out to a really dark place and get to really, really see the stars. And I always, my husband now jokes with me because the movie Dragnet from the eighties, there's a scene where they're at an overlook and they're looking at, up at the sky and the lady says, oh, look at the stars, dozens of them. And it, it just makes me laugh that 
you know, dozens seems like a lot if you live in the city and that's all you can really see. But when you're out in the darkness with a big, big open sky above you and you can see the millions and billions, I just lay on the ground and just stare at the sky. About 30 years ago, my family traveled to Northern California. I think we were along the Mendocino coast. I don't remember exactly, but it was nighttime and we were mesmerized by how beautiful the sky, the sky was. The stars looked so big and it looked like they were so close to us that we could just reach up and touch them. It was the most beautiful, the most spectacular sky I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't, that's one of the, again, that's, you go in nature, it doesn't take a lot. You don't, it doesn't cost you anything to, well, I mean, it costs you to get there, but it doesn't cost any extra when you're there to look at the sky. You know, it doesn't cost anything to go out in the backyard and pick up leaves that have blown around from the neighboring trees and see if you can identify which tree they came from. And those are memories that just, that will stick with a kid. The things you think won't, like I said, that you know, making my own hot chocolate, the, little, the littlest things are really bound to stick with a kid as uh, with a child, as long as they know that you're spending that quality time with them. I think a lot of what you're saying is the idea that you're using your senses. And when you use your senses, it makes memory stick in your mind a lot better. Yes. It's what you can see yeah. and smell and touch and taste and feel. It's just yeah. And to actually talk about it and think about it. So, you know, don't just go pick up leaves, but where did that leaf come from and why is it on the ground and why is it that color and thinking about things really helps stick things into your mind. One of my college professors, we would hike and hike and, and learn and learn and learn. And then he'd say, okay, we'll stop here and we'll take a lunch break. And we'd all be so happy, like, yay, we get a break. And while you're taking your lunch break, summarize everything that we've talked about in the first half of the day. <laughs> like, oh man, that's a lot of work, but you saw it, you talked about it, and then you wrote about it and thought about it again. And the more times you put that through your mind, the more times you decide why leaves turn yellow, it's going to stick. Right. Your brain is processing it and then it helps you to remember. One of the things that I know as having studied it in school and I see it with my grandkids, I saw it with my children, is young children tend to forget things. But if you reinforce it, then they can remember it. So like you're saying, like as an adult, your college professor is saying, okay, we've done this, but now process it. And that helps you remember it. Writing yeah, is yeah. a great tool for that. Yeah. I found that in one of my college classes, we were allowed to have one notebook size piece of paper that we could have notes on for our exams. And so I'd take, you know, 10 pages of notes from the class and I'd start to compress them and decide what was important and decide what I didn't need and what I did need. And maybe I'd get to four sheets and then I'd get to two sheets. And by the time I got everything on one piece of paper that I could legally take into the test, I hardly had to look at it. I had written it three or four times. And all I really needed was those weird numbers that, you know, <laughs> wouldn't stick or something. And I almost didn't look at the paper at all. And then I would observe that other people who photocopied and shrunk and taped every note to one piece of paper 
and they were frantically flipping it and flipping it and flipping it and trying to find where that they couldn't, they, they didn't have any idea what they were looking for. And so that's, you know, like you said, just talk about it, think about it, write it, think about it some more, talk about it again. And it's likely to stick with you for a long, long time. Such as stirring your own hot chocolate. That's a cute story. Right? I really like that. <laughs> One of the things that I did with my grandkids is make butter. And that was an amazing opportunity for them. It's so simple, but they had so much fun because it was a bit of measuring. It was a bit of movement, shaking the butter and, and we just had fun. We just, it was absolutely fun. And then the great thing about butter is you get to eat the butter. (laughs) Yes. On hot rolls (laughs) or hot bread. (laughs) So what else do you want? grandparents to know about camping? I want them to know that it can be as simple as you need it to be. Like I said, if all you can do is go out to the garage and sleep on some pillows, or if all you can do is throw a blanket over the couch and pretend like you're in a tent, just do it and just make it as fun and interactive and a learning experience that they don't know they're having right? So let it all be fun and they will remember it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Adventures with Grammy podcast. If you did, I would like for you to do two things for me. One, hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss any episodes of the podcast and ask your family members and friends to do the same. The second thing is to Visit the website, adventureswithgrammy.com, and look on the menu bar and click on the link, Newsletter Sign Up. That will give you access to my monthly newsletter. Also, ask your family members and friends if they will sign up too. Please feel free to contact me, carolyn at adventureswithgrammy.com, with any comments or suggestions.